But let me pray while we're still standing. Lord, thank you for this night. Thank you for Wednesday, February 1st, for bringing us to this day. Lord, you've ordained this day. We rejoice in it. We're glad in it because you've given it to us. As we study tonight, Lord, I pray that you would give us a spirit of joy and hopefulness in the return of Christ, in the certainty of the victory of our King. Lord, I pray tonight that, uh, that you would help us to think more clearly about what the Bible says, even in this very difficult topic. So help me help my brothers and sisters and any that might be gathered here tonight that do not know you. I pray that they would see and, and, and understand who Jesus is, that you might bring them to faith. Lord, be glorified and help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, let's have a seat. And um, you have your notes in front of you. And I want to, uh, we're going to unveil something here, all this technological upgrading that we've done here. We've got some, you have it all in front of you, so you don't really need this, but I just kind of want to do it. So you'll see it up on the screen here in just a second. Um, yeah, all right. That, well, well there, it's not up there yet, but boy, this is wonderful. Hey, remember that time we tried to do some neat stuff? At, okay, there we go. All right. You don't need this yet. It's in front of you, but we're going to look at some charts of some millennial views, and I'm going to zoom in on them. And I might draw on them a little bit. Uh, but here's what I want to do. Uh, here's a couple opening thoughts to sort of orient us to what we're going to do tonight in the next few weeks. First, I want us to think about the challenge of eschatology or the challenge of this particular area of doctrine. Um, this is probably, I would say, the most uh, debated and ambiguous and least clear area of major doctrine. So let's just admit that there are people that have been faithful, fruitful Christians that have wonderful minds that have been used by the Lord gloriously, who agree on just about everything else, who differ on this particular area of doctrine. So let's just, let's just recognize that this particular area of theology is more challenging and more debated than any other. Secondly, that should lead us to, I think, the, what I want to speak to just briefly is about the humility needed for eschatology. Uh, I think that this is one area of doctrine where sometimes people get really, really interested in, and they should. I think that's a good thing. But sometimes with increasing interest comes a kind of subsequent increasing certainty about their particular view. And I think that we should uh, think deeply, but maybe hold on to our particular positions each of which have their weaknesses uh, with a little bit of humility. So this is not an area that I think we should ever divide over uh, in church fellowship. Uh, it may cause somebody so much chagrin that they feel like they need to, but I don't think, uh, I don't think that's necessary. Um, this is not an area where I think we need to draw strict lines. I think this is where we drawed lines, and so I want us to have a lot of humility. And I certainly want to say that in, in the spirit of humility... Uh, personally, I think that there are some areas of doctrine in the Bible that I wouldn't necessarily say I'm an expert on, but are more of my forte, things that I have sort of um, spent a lot more time thinking about in my pastoral ministry. And this is one that is probably, I feel, the least comfortable in, in the major areas of doctrine. So I certainly don't want to present myself as, um, as well-informed on even the views that I'm going to talk about tonight as I am on things like maybe Reformed theology or the sovereignty of God and salvation or, or other things like that. So I want to offer that bit of humility. 
Thirdly, let us see there, uh, the purpose behind this, though, is, I think, a pastoral concern that as we are growing and living in, a, living in a culture that is growing increasingly hostile to us as Christians, which is sort of new ground for us as a church, uh, I do think that this topic is becoming more and more relevant. And so uh, I think more and more voices within the church at large um, are starting to speak to these issues with more and more certainty, which at times I think can be helpful and at other times I think unhelpful. And as a result, I think we have a burden as a church and as a leadership and me as the primary teaching pastor to give some instruction in these matters, even if I wade into these waters with some humility and caution. Which then leads me to letter D, which is then let's not just let this float 30,000 feet above the heavens or above the, the earth and let it be kind of a theoretical discussion. My hope is not that we just become more informed uh, about a millennial view or what the Bible says about Israel or what the Bible says about Jesus' return or things like that, but that, but that this would produce in us a kind of personal and practical eschatology. Because regardless of what we believe about when Jesus will return or what the millennium is, the likelihood is not so much for most of in this room, and I'm not sure about this, I'm just saying the likelihood is not that Jesus is coming to us, but that we are going to him in death. And so in a sense, the last things individually for each one of us is probably that we will stand before the Lord personally. And so I want to produce in us um, a sense of a kind of what should my soon eventual death, you know, in, in the span of eternity, which is you know, 80 or 90 years for us on this, what is my personal meeting of the Lord or the Lord's return, what should that produce in me and what type of church should we be if these things are true? And I think that's ultimately my, my bigger burden than whether you land on one particular view or another. Here's a quick overview of the four weeks. Tonight, I just want to set the table. Um, I just want to kind of give a broad overview of some of the four major, really three major millennial views with one of them being having kind of a, of a, of, of a sub view. So I want to do that. We've done that a few times before, but I think it's helpful. And I'm going to give some comments along the way. I'll tell you where I stand on my millennial view tonight. And then next week, I'm going to really dig down into, I think, making an argument for the view that I hold, which I'll, again, I'll get to just to keep you hanging here for a little bit. And in next week, I'm not only going to give an argument for the view that I think is most biblical, although it has its problems and tensions, uh, but I'm also going to, I think, sp try and speak about why I think it is a better view. It makes more sense to me than the other views, although the other views are certainly held by faithful Christians. And then thirdly, we're going to kind of really zero, third week, we're going to zero in on kind of the practical eschatology. How then should we live? I mean, it's one thing to study these things, but can it almost be kind of a dangerous thing to study these things and not be affected by them? This is what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, towards the end of his life. He says, uh, I'll read in verse, uh, starting in verse 6, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, 
will award to me on that day, meaning that day when I meet the Lord or when he meets, when he comes, Paul didn't know. And not only to me, but listen to this description, but also to all who have loved his appearing. In other words, those who are leaning forward into the the reign of Christ, the return of Christ, and eternity. And I think that should be the posture of every Christian. And then the fourth week is going to be kind of a grab bag, sort of like the utility drawer, like the, the drawer in your kitchen where you just got you know, rubber bands and paper clips and uh, steak knives and scissors. And so we're going we're gonna to look at a few questions like, how should we view Israel? What is the rapture? Is there even a rapture? And could Christ come at any moment amongst other questions? And we may adapt that depending on what sort of comes up over the next three weeks. Okay, let's look at Revelation 20 just to orient us. This is the only place in the Bible, the only place in the Bible that speaks about a millennium, which is kind of like the centerpiece of millennial views. You got this on your sheet there, so don't worry about looking at the screen unless you have really good eyes. So this is the... Uh, Apostle John at the end of his revelation, and he says, Revelation 20, starting in verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. That's the first time in the Bible. I mean, we're we're at 99% of the Bible's over at this point, and that's the first time in the Bible that this millennium or thousand years is, is mentioned, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority of the judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended... Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. Okay, I just read that to orient you to this is the passage that has developed, has kind of been the foundational baseline passage for these millennial views that we're going to look at here in just a moment. Now, I don't like to just kind of parachute down into a text without explaining the whole book. Mark McGraw, for years, has been bugging me about preaching through Revelation, and someday... Uh, we'll get there, um, but not yet. We're, we have to finish Hebrews, Mark. So, but this is the only passage in the Bible that speaks about this, this, um, this millennium. So let's now flip our page to the second page there, and let's look at the four millennial views. And I'm going to go through these a little bit quickly, 
And I can just kind of blow the map up there because I might draw a few things here on the map. But I want you to look first at uh, historic premillennialism. Um, I think this might have been maybe the first view that was adopted in the early church fathers in the 300s, 400s. I don't know if that's true or not. But um, this is, the, I think, probably the most well-known view, sort of globally, uh, maybe not, but this is probably the earliest view. And what is, so think about this millennium, this word millennium, a thousand years, and that's in reference to when Jesus returns. So this phrase pre means that this particular view sees Jesus as returning before the millennium. And we're calling this historic premillennialism millennialism, because we're going to distinguish it from the second view we're going to look at, which is a kind of offshoot of it. Uh, it's crazy cousin, which is dispensational premillennialism, which we'll get at to in just a second. But here, what is historic premillennialism? It's obviously this view that Christ returns before the millennium, and I'm just going to kind of summarize these bullet points. Uh, a number of events in this particular view, you can see there that we're in the church age. You can see the cross there to your, to uh, to your, there on the um, on the on the on the uh, sheet, and that's Jesus's resurrection. And so we're living in the church age. And so sometime in the future, this particular view uh, views, this particular view holds that there will be a great apostasy or a turning away from the Lord, and there will be a great tribulation on the earth in which the Antichrist reigns. And that is not something that the church will be spared from, but Christians will have to endure this great tribulation. Now, the Bible does, I think, speak about just tribulation in general, and there are some passages uh, places like Matthew chapter 24 in particular and 2 Thessalonians that seem to indicate an increasing period of tribulation in the future. And that's what's in view here in this, this map, this great tribulation when a time when the Antichrist reigns, something in the future. And then uh, this particular view holds that, uh, that, that a couple things have to happen before Jesus returns. Nations have to be evangelized, this tribulation, great apostasy, and the appearing of a personal antichrist. And a lot of times the thought is, is maybe it's some world leader. The church uh, has been going through tribulation, but it will intensify and endure with a great tribulation. Now, what's distinguishing here about pre premillennialism against dispensationalism is that the return of Christ is not a two-stage event, which we'll look at in just a second, which some uh, Christians believe, but a single occurrence. So Jesus comes down, he descends, and that's what you might call the rapture. And we'll look at the rapture more in detail maybe later on, maybe at the, uh, towards the end of this four-week session. Uh, there's different understandings of what the rapture is. But this isn't a rapture thinking of like you're caught up and all of a sudden, you know, like cars all of a sudden that were uh, driven by Christians or planes that are piloted by Christians all of a sudden are, you know, just crash or whatever. That's not this understanding of the rapture. This is Christ catching up his people and then bringing them back down to earth and establishing his millennial reign on the earth. And that, then Christ descends to earth. The Antichrist, who's not the devil, he's the Antichrist, is slain and his reign is brought to an end. So at this time then, a great number of Jews uh, will come to faith in Jesus according to this view. That's looking at Romans chapter 11. I'm sure you remember that sermon on Romans chapter 11 from four or five years ago when I think the Bible clearly teaches that there will be at least an outpouring of evangelism to some degree on ethnic Israel, which will be grafted back into true Israel, which is believing Israel, which is Christ in his church. 
This view holds in that Satan will be bound and Christ will reign on earth. And he, see, this was, I want you to see this. What's going on here now is Christ is now, this is the interesting thing about this view. Look at this big box here in the middle, the millennium. Jesus is, is reigning here earthly on the earth. Satan is bound and there's, there's Christians are reigning with Jesus. So you have all of the, the, the people that have died in Christ have been resurrected. The righteous dead have been raised. Jesus is reigning on earth in some form or fashion. Most premillennialists believe kind of physically. But you also still have uh, death and you have people that are not truly believing in Jesus, which is an interesting take. That's a really interesting aspect of historic premillennialism is that Jesus is reigning earthly, Satan is bound, and then the temple in Jerusalem, which is the, which is the, the capital of the millennium, is rebuilt, and the priesthood and sacrifices and the cult rituals are restored, which that's another very interesting and I would say somewhat problematic aspect of a premillennial view is that there's this kind of temple worship not, hear me, not because Jesus' sacrifice is now all of a sudden irrelevant in this earthly millennium, but it's a way of kind of this renewed new Israel in the millennium worshiping Jesus. And so they see uh, this temple being rebuilt. The, the interesting thing about uh, premillennialism, both historic and dispensational, is that it envisions an earthly millennium with Jesus reigning on the earth. I just love how that disappears. I just want to keep doing that. That's so cool. <laughs> okay. Um, is that, is that uh, there is still death and sin and rebellion, even though it's on a minor degree, during Jesus' earthly reign. And I would say that's probably the biggest problem with this view. Because I think that the balance of the New Testament, when it speaks about Jesus' return, speaks to a kind of finality to Jesus' return. So anyway, we continue. Um, so unbelievers, they're just kind of midway through the bullet points, will be on earth during this time, and many will become believers, so there will still be an opportunity for evangelism. Uh, again, that seems problematic because it seems like when Jesus comes, like that's the, you know, that's the, but anyway, we'll, we'll get into that. The unbelieving nations which are still upon the earth are kept in check and ruled over by Christ with an iron rod. This millennium is not to be confused with the final state, so it's not kind of like the final heavens in the earth, for sin and death still exist, but it will be greatly restrained and righteousness will prevail. Now, at the end of the millennium, just like remember we read in, in, in Revelation 20, there will be this kind of final loosing. And every one of the millennial views holds for a final temporary loosing of Satan where then he is finally and fully defeated um, at uh, Battle of Gog and Magog, the great judgment, and then he's defeated, he's thrown down into the lake of fire forever, and then we're into the eternal state, new Jerusalem, new heavens, where everything is recreated re and, 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 and everything is renewed and Jesus establishes his eternal reign forever. And those that are with Christ reign with him. And those that are, are not in Christ, uh, they are down, in, uh, separated from him forever. It's just kind of a broad overview of historic premillennialism. Some objections to this view. Uh, Revelation 20 does not give indisputable proof for this millennial reign. It's a kind of a literal reading of Revelation when I think you could make a pretty good argument that most of Revelation is more symbolic and idealistic. 
Uh, I think then point number two, as far as objections, is that the return of glorified Christ and glorified believers to an earth where sin and death still exist seems to be at odds uh, with how the New Testament speaks of the finality of glorification for believers after they die. I think probably when I came to Christ, this was the view that I probably held, uh, I probably thought was, and, and, and lots of faithful Christians, I mean, many people in this church, maybe even some of our elders and pastors believe, this is not a, uh, a thing we need to divide over, but this is the thing that causes me the most um, angst with this particular view. It just, the return of, of Christ here uh, in the New Testament just seems so final that to envision a millennium where there's still sin, death, and rebellion seems, um, seems difficult to piece together. Um, which is really what point three is saying too, is that the earthly millennium does not accord with New Testament because it does not belong to the present age or the age to come, which we're really going to get into next week. The New Testament seems to be pretty clear. We're in this age and the age to come. Over and over in Paul's letter, he talks about this age and the age to come. Okay, let's go to dispensational premillennialism, which is the next one. And um, this is a newer subset of historic premillennialism, but I want to say that it's quite different. I think really the only thing it really, the major thing it holds in common with historic premillennialism is that it believes, it holds that Christ returns before the millennium and the tribulation. But it's not just kind of an end times view. It's really a hermeneutic or a lens, an interpretive grid that is a way of interpreting the whole Bible. And I want to just say here, uh, that I think this is probably the predominant view in the laity in the American church, certainly amongst Baptist circles. And I also think it is the furthest from any biblical footing. I think it's been popularized by books like Left Behind by Tim LaHaye and others and Kirk Cameron's series. But I think it's, it's, uh, it's really... Uh, if you hold this view, I love you, and we can talk about it uh, in further length over coffee, but I think it has a good number of problems, and I think it ends up putting a person on a trajectory where they end up sort of uh, missing the forest from the trees. They make the center of the Bible Israel rather than Christ, and I think that's the biggest problem with this. And so that's the biggest difference between dispensational premillennialism and historic premillennialism is it centers too much, it centers much more on Israel. And where does this word dispensation come from? Again, it's not just looking at end times, but it's sort of dividing all of the Bible, Bible up into seven dispensations or epochs or ages or phases. The age of innocence, conscience, human government, promise, law, uh, age of grace, which is what we're in now, and then the final, the kingdom, millennium, and then judgment. So that's where this word dispensation comes from. So this is the most recent view, and it came about, I think, almost primarily in the American church. It shares some similarities. I'm on the bullet points now to premillennialism, but lots of differences. In fact, historic premillennialism is much closer to amillennialism and postmillennialism, I think, than it is to dispensational premillennialism, even though they share that view that Christ comes before the millennium. Now, here's where the point, bullet point number three. If you, if you think of anything about dispensational premillennialism, I think you need to know this, is that it maintains a clear, at least historically, I think current day dispensationalists are starting to, um, starting to give a little bit on this, uh, which I think is a good thing. 
But historically, in its more academic form, this particular view wants to maintain a real distinction between Israel, Old Testament Israel, and the church. This is a key to understanding classic, historic, academic dispensationalism. It sees the Old Testament, this is important, kind of an offshoot of that previous point, as containing many promises that sometime in the future, God will establish an earthly kingdom involving ethnic Israel, his ancient covenant people. And in its worst form, in its worst form, it is the view that God sort of has two plans of salvation for ethnic Israel and the church. And that's promoted by, uh, at least in the past, I think he's recounted this, but I say this because I'm one of your shepherds and I want to guard you from, I think, what is bad teaching. That guy out in Texas, John Hagee, if you've ever heard of him, he wrote a book that actually put forward this view. I think he recounted it, I believe, but, but the, he did this within the last 10 or so years and he's been preaching forever. Like, I don't know how he came to this conclusion that there's different plans of salvation for Israel, ethnic Israel, and the church. And part of what's going on in the millennium is this restoration of these sacrifices so that Israel can be saved through the sacrificial system. Well, friends, I think that's just absolutely heretical. The Bible just is uh, it's just ridiculous. And that's kind of dispensationalism gone super kooky. And, and, and that's, but, but what's, what's made that, what's given that, um, that rise to sort of the fringes of it is this real distinction between, I think, a misunderstanding of the promises to ethnic Israel needing to be interpreted literally in a national Israel in the New Covenant, and I don't think that is what's going on in the Bible. Um, so uh, Jews rejected the kingdom, so then Christ proceeds to establish the church, and therefore it kind of views the church as a kind of parenthesis in the plan of God, interrupting God's plan for Israel. The present church age is a, is a period not predicted by the Old Testament prophets, and I just think that that kind of does a lot of damage to the unity of scriptures uh, that we see in the Bible. It breaks Christ's return into two parts, and this is a very new thing within the last 120 years or so. It came about in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. It breaks Christ's return into two parts, the first being a secret rapture of Christ to take believers out of the world before the widespread conversion of the Jewish people. And so that's where you get kind of this return of Christ, sort of part, you know, part A and then part B here. Um, and so there's this tribulation in the middle. And that tribulation, that seven-year tribulation, is necessary because it's an understanding of Daniel chapter 9 and the 70th week of Daniel. And I think it's kind of forced by dispensationalists to sort of, because of what they want to do with Israel, they want all of these promises that they're seeing in the Old Testament to Israel, and they're interpreting them literally and so they, I think, in a kind of mechanical and foreign way to the Bible, then need to insert this 70th week of Daniel from Daniel chapter 9, not chapter 7, Daniel chapter 9, into this period where God then resumes his purposes for Israel, which is this tribulation. And I think, I think again, there's lots of godly people. I mean, John MacArthur kind of held to this. Um, and I, and I've, I value, I've, I've, boy, you keep doing that. It just kind of stays there. Um, Lots of godly, wonderful people, conservative Christians have believed this, but I just think it's, it's, kind, of a, 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 it's kind of a doctrinal, hermeneutical pretzel that you have to do. It's, it, just, it, you, it requires a lot of manipulation of, of the Bible to insert 
this tribulation and the, the two-part return of Christ into this part A and part B in this great tribulation. They believe at the end of the seven-year period, Christ will return in glory, accompanied by the church. At this time, he will come all the way down to earth, destroy his enemies. Battle of Armageddon happens. By this time, the nation of Israel will have been regathered into Palestine. Christ returns. The majority of the Israelites in living will turn to Christ in faith and be saved in fulfillment of Old Testament and New Testament predictions. Christ then begins his millennial reign. And at this point, it's pretty similar to just uh, the, the historic premillennial view of the millennium. Some objections to dispensational view is that uh, uh, it, it, many of the same objections to the pre, uh, classic pre-mill view, but more specifically, I think it fails to do justice to the basic unity of the biblical revelation. Scripture does not support seeing the church as a parenthesis. I think Scripture speaks of the people of God as one people of God, from the Old Covenant to the New, and that many interpreti- interpretive issues here become a problem for dispensationalists. I think that when God is speaking to Israel ethnically in the Old Testament, I think a better way to view that as a, a, a real promise, but a shadow that is fulfilled in New Israel, the church, which is the people of God, both Jew and Gentile. And I think that's borne out in Galatians chapter 3 and, verse, and Romans chapter 9, where the only truth, in other words, all of the promises to Israel are based upon their obedience to the law. But Israel never obeys God, and so they will never inherit the promise, except for the one Jew, the one Israelite who does inherit, who does obey the law perfectly, and is the rightful inheritance of all the promises to Israel. And who is, it? Who is the one faithful Jew that does inherit all the promises to Israel in the Old Testament? It's not a new version of ethnic Israel that was constituted in 1948. It is Christ who's the one true Jew. So all the promises to Israel in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ, who is the only one, who's the one who's obeyed the covenant and worthy to receive all the promises. And so then in the New Testament, all the promises to God's people are yes and amen in Christ. So what does it mean to be then in Romans chapter 9 and Galatians chapter 3 to be a Jew? is not to be ethnically Jew, but it's to be in the one true Jew who is Christ. So we are spiritually Jewish because we're in Christ. And I think that's the point Paul is making in Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 9. That those who are in Christ, who is the one true Jew, the one true Israelite, the only one that can inherit the promises to Israel, we are spiritual Israel because we're in Christ. And so um, I think that's the problem with, histori- with dispensational premillennialism. Okay, let's keep going. Postmillennialism. Postmillennialism which has been around forever, and as you can tell by the title then, just you see this theme pre-post, it means that Christ's return returns after the millennium. So you can just kind of see the, 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 the illustration there. Uh, there's lots of variance between post-millennialists through the ages. Um, uh, some might believe that we're kind of in the millennium now, and it's going to get it's, it's, it's kind of ramping up, or some believe that the millennium is in the future. But nevertheless, uh, we're in this present age, um, and we are the church. And at some point in the future, they view the millennium as something in the future where the world will become better, the gospel will increase in advance, and gradual Christian, Christianization of the world. And the world will become better, not by accident, but because of the success of the gospel. And so uh, this view takes verses like the Great Commission, um, go into all the world and preach the gospel, 
and it's a very optimistic view of the advance of the gospel um, in the years to come through the church age. It's looking at, uh, like, for example, P- Jesus' words to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, that the, the gate, that, that I give you, you're the church, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and, and nothing will defeat the church. And so it's a very optimistic view about the advance of the gospel, and it envisions a future not where everybody that li- is living on the earth is a Christian, but that we live, that the world will be sort of Christianized, the culture will be Christianized, and there will be a, a, a such an increase that the dominant worldview uh, will be the kingdom of God, and a, a vast majority of people on earth will be Christians, and then Jesus will return, and there will be a final uh, the judgment, and then the eternal state, the new heavens, and the new Jerusalem. So just a couple main points there. The progress of the gospel will gradually increase, so that an increasingly large proportion of the world becomes Christians. Point to things like the Great Commission, Matthew 16, the parables of the kingdom, where it just seems to grow, 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 in Matthew 13. Um, beginning of the millennium is either gradual or abrupt. There's differences of opinion on this. The millennium will see tremendous expansion of Christianity, increased peace and prosperity in the world, and large numbers of ethnic Jews will come to faith in Christ. During the millennium, Christ is in heaven, not on earth, but he exercises his reign through the Spirit and the church's preaching of the gospel. And the first resurrection is believers' spiritual transformation from life, from death to life through union with Christ. After the millennium, for a brief time, Satan will be loosed, as it says in Revelation 20, and then defeated and will go on to the eternal state. Um, Christ will return to earth. Believers and unbelievers will be raised, final judgment, and then we're on into the new heavens and the new earth. The primary characteristic of, of postmillennialism is its optimism about the power of the gospel to change lives and bring about much good. And so I, I find a lot of um, encouragement from this particular view, and a lot of what postmillennialists say, I want to say yes and amen. And there have been lots of great minds in the history of the church that have been post-millennialists. Jonathan Edwards, for example, probably the greatest American theologian, was post-millennial. However, there's lots of variance in post-millennialism, and there's actually lots of similarities between post-millennialism and amillennialism, which we'll get to here in just a second. Um, the kingdom of God, is this view is now being extended through the preaching of the gospel, eventually Christianized. Sin will not be eliminated in the millennium, but brought to a minimum. There will be a golden age of spiritual prosperity that will last for a long period, perhaps much longer than a literal thousand years. And uh, these, uh, these, this view advocates that the great tri- this is important, and we may get into this in coming weeks, this view advocates that the great tribulation in the Olivet Discourse that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24 has already happened. So all of the other views would look at what's going on in Matthew 24 and see it kind of like a dual fulfillment. Something's happening um, in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed, but also it being symbolic of things in the future, whereas postmillennialism would look at most of Matthew 24 and seeing it has already fulfilled um, in the first century. Okay, some objections to post, the postmillennialism position. Uh, the Old Testament prophecies interpreted by post-mill, things like Isaiah that speak about uh, this, this, this wonderful state of the world, uh, refer to a fu- that refer to a future millennial age, actually picture the final state. So the, the critique would be is that some of these passages in Isaiah that they would say are characteristic of this millennium actually fit 
here in the eternal state would be the criticism of it. The common post-mill view of the Great Tribulation of Matthew 24 and 2 Thessalonians 2 is hard to justify, especially Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31, that seem to speak pretty decisively about this event that seems to only be able to be fulfilled by the return of Christ. So it seems like something still out in the future. And then, finally, the post-mill expectation of a future golden age before Christ's return does not seem to square with the continuing tension in the history of the world between the kingdom of God and the forces of evil. And in particular, uh, Matthew chapter 13, verses 36 to 43, speak about uh, the judgment when Jesus is speaking about Jesus' return, and it speaks about how there will be you know, wheat and tares, sheep and goats, with, uh, in the world until Jesus returns. And so many have looked at that and said, hey, that seems to mitigate against the post-millennial view. And finally, to amillennialism. And this is a view that I would hold with some humility and um, loosely that I think is probably the, uh, that makes the most sense to me. And let me just breeze through it and then we'll stop and ask any questions. Um, Amillennialism is probably not the best way to say it because when you put an A in front of a word, it means not this. So it's not saying there's no millennium. But it means that there's, it's inaugurated. In other words, it's already happening now. And in that sense, it kind of shares a little bit with postmillennialism. It believes that Jesus inaugurated is reigning. The, that what's going on in Revelation 20 about how Satan was bound in chapter in verse four, only to be loosed for a, in a final time. That that binding of Satan happened at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And so Jesus is the King reigning now in heaven, and we are in the millennium now. The term, uh, the first point there, the amillennial is not great. I think it's better to look at it as a realized kingdom that's reigning in heaven. Um, The third point there understands the binding of Satan mentioned in Revelation 20 as being in effect during the entire period between first and second coming of Christ. Now, the binding of Satan does not mean that he's not active. Obviously, we've seen Satan active in the world since the cross, but it means that he has been greatly neutralized. And Amillennialists would point to the huge spread of the gospel through the nations as evidence that he has been bound or at least neutralized to a great degree by Christ's cross. It holds that the kingdom of God is now present in the world, although not yet fully realized. So there's this tension between this age and the age to come, and the victorious Christ is ruling in his people by his word and his spirit, though they look forward to a future glorious and perfect kingdom on the new earth in the life to come. Christ has won a decisive victory over sin and evil, but evil continues alongside the kingdom of God on the earth until the end of this present age. And I think the rest of the points you can read on your own uh, just speak to that tension that we face. Now, in reality, I don't think that there is, up until probably a couple hundred years ago, there wasn't really much of a distinction between amillennialism and postmillennialism because both of them are much simpler than premillennialism. You just kind of see that we're in the you know, the present age, and then Jesus is returning. And what the difference is, is just really, I think, the degree, I want you to see this, the difference between amillennialism and postmillennialism is primarily the degree of optimism or expectation 
that the culture will change and be renewed before Christ returns. Okay, I would say that's the primary difference between amillennialism and postmillennialism. And within amillennialism, you have more pessimistic amillennialists and you have more optimistic amillennialists. I mean, in every band, you have an Eeyore and a Tigger. And the same is true in amillennialism. You have some amillennialists that just are wringing their hands and everything is going to, you know, heck in a handbasket. And you have others that are pretty optimistic, but they just don't really go as far as maybe a postmillennialist would. So what are the objections to the amill view? The postmill post in particular would object that some, the more Eeyore-like amillennialists, are too pessimistic about the advance of the gospel and the kingdom. And I think that can be certainly a valid critique at times. Um, the, the, some would also say that the binding of Satan in Revelation 20 seems to be more extensive than what is alluded to by Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 and Luke 10. Um, we can talk about that later. Um, and then premillennialists counter that Revelation 20 does teach two resurrections, whereas the amillennialists would look at that first resurrection as just being symbolic of the new birth or um, the, of, 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 of being born again. And premillennialists counter that it is not impossible, because remember what the big critique of premillennialism is, is that how can evil and sin and death occur after Jesus has come down and returned? That seems to be at odds with a lot of what the Bible says about Jesus' return and what life's going to be like after that. And they would counter that it's not impossible for evil and secret rebellion still to persist on earth because, for example, Judas lived with Jesus for three years before betraying him. Okay, so I, I think that each of these views has their strengths and weaknesses. Um, I think that um, any of them are valid. All of them are held by faithful Christians. Um, I think if I could just say one of the weaknesses of historic premillennialism is that I think it kind of does some gymnastics with the text. And I think that thinking about um, a millennium where Jesus has not glorified his saints just doesn't accord with the plain teaching of the New Testament. I think dispensational premillennialism is the least biblical or has the least biblical support and is most difficult to maintain. And this is probably the one that I would probably have the most concern with if I were discipling somebody uh, that I would probably try and argue the strongest against because I think it sends people into thinking and focusing too much on headlines and world events and what's happening with Israel. Not that that's unimportant, but I think it makes people focus on something that's secondary and not primary, which is Christ. And I think that, uh, I, I also think that strangely, it's caused people political, especially in the United States, it's got this strange adaptation in the worst expressions of dispensationalism where people think that, like they take the Abrahamic promise in Genesis chapter 12, where God says that if you bless, where he says to Abraham, he says, whoever blesses you, whoever, you know, is good, whoever blesses you, I will bless. And I think dispensationalists in its worst expression then manifests itself into American politics and sees that as a promise to ethnic Israel in the New Covenant, New Testament, thereby taking from that, that if America politically sides with Israel, we will somehow be sort of supernaturally blessed by God. Now, let me say that I think the vast majority of time we should support Israel, 
because they're our allies and they're, they're, they're level-headed people amongst uh, nations and Arab, Arabic nations and Islamic nations that want to kill them. Not Arabic, I shouldn't have said that. Islamic nations that want to kill them. Uh, but to, to interpret the promises and the promised blessing to Israel in the Old Testament as some sort of spiritual rabbit's foot that obligates God to bless us is a kind of strange form of the prosperity gospel, as if America can just do all sorts of wicked things like murder 60 million babies, but oh, by the way, if we just move the, you know, we just support Israel, then we're good. That's absolutely ridiculous. That's ridiculous. And that's a terrible way of looking at the Bible. And I don't know that many dispensationalists think that way now, but there were some that did. And some of them... uh, really come out of the woodwork during presidential elections. And I think I'd probably vote the way they do. I just think that their logic is really flawed, and it causes them to sort of get into this weird prosperity gospel stuff. That's why, friends, that's why I think a lot of our Pentecostal and charismatic friends are dispensational, because they're caught up into this. It's like a promise. It's like a prosperity gospel blessing that if we bless Israel, we bless Israel, we bless Israel, then God's going to bless us. No, the point of the Bible is if you trust in Christ, if you're in Christ, then you'll be blessed. And not with an earthly political uh, favor, but with eternal redemption from your sins forever. That's the trajectory of the Bible. Okay, so that's my critique of dispensationalism. My concern about postmillennialism would be uh, I have a lot of sympathy towards postmillennialism. I think I have a lot of kinship with postmillennial view critiques of culture. But I think in its more present form, uh, uh, the expressions that are, that, are, that are rising up in America today... I think it unwittingly can, hear me out on this, it sees cultural transformation as part of uh, the millennium. And we are all, all Christians should be for cultural transformation. Amen and amen, right? But I think it, because it sees that as really part of what we should expect in the advance of the gospel in the millennium, I think it unwittingly can cause people that hold to this view to sort of focus on that. It's almost like a right-wing expression of social justice than actually gospel ministry and I think a more realistic understanding that we're going to be opposed and the world's going to hate us and we shouldn't have this expectation necessarily that the kingdoms, polit- all the nations will politically sort of be Christianized. And I think it can kind of unwittingly send us off into a kind of tick, more in the right-wing expression of the social justice, where liberal Christians would focus on, you know, health care for the poor and all these kind of things, which we would say, oh, well, if we get caught up into that, we're sort of losing the focus on the gospel. Nobody's against good things for the poor, but do you see how that's kind of a critique that sometimes conservative Christians would have of, the, of, of sort of left-leaning Christians? Well, I think that post-millennialism can unwittingly cause a person to sort of think more like on the right wing of that and say, oh, well, like, you know, let's get everything, let's have laws that outlaw particular sinful activities. And we all want to say to that yes and amen, but I think it kind of unwittingly can put our kind of hope in the, the man-made levers, levers of political power. That would be my big critique of post-millennialism, although I share a lot of sympathy and all millennialism is just right. So anyway, no, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. My critique of all millennialism is that it can be just kind of a reformed academic expression. Well, I see the Bible rightly. Jesus, this is going to be the age. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. And so it can lead to a kind of passiveness 
and this is the critique of maybe some other of our friends that don't hold to this, a, a kind of maybe even pessimistic, man, the world's rough, the world's rough, but Jesus is coming back. Uh, I think it can produce, in its worst expression, a kind of disconnectedness from really caring about culture and good things and uh, all, all righteousness here on earth. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But all millennialism can kind of blunt that call. Does that make sense? And so, okay, I've talked a lot. I hope I haven't bored you. Have I bored you, Mark? Okay, good. Any questions? I was a l- big fire hose, little mouth. A couple minutes of questions. Yeah, Ben. Uh, wait till the mic comes. Yeah, sit down. Regarding view on uh, postmillennialism mm-hmm. and Matthew 24, um, what would you say to verse 33 and 34 of Matthew 24, and then also the similar verse in Mark 13? It says. Uh, this generation shall not pass away until all these things have been have taken place. Yeah. And then also, how would that be expressed? Or what would be kind of the view of amillennialism with the whole of Matthew 24? Yep. Well, let me just say briefly, because, uh, man, we could do a whole session sure. on Matthew 24. We've had some conversations. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we can talk about this further one-on-one. I think Matthew 24 um, is broken down into segments, and there's this, uh, I think that there's a hermeneutical thing going on in hermeneutical meaning a kind of way or lens, an interpretive lens. It's called recapitulation. I think Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 is repeating himself in several segments of Matthew chapter 24. And so when when he's talking about um, this generation in verses 32 through 34, about these things, um, I think he is, uh, it's not linear. He's, 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 he's jumping around in Matthew 24, and so I think what he's talking about these things, he's going back to what he said in verses 4 through 14, and so I think he is speaking about what you see, the destruction of the temple, but in verses 29 through 31, so there's a kind of jumping back and forth, like he'll tell, this is what's going to happen, there's one circle, and then there will be a kind of recapitulation of that, like in verses 29 through 31, that I think is speaking about his return. And then there's kind of a, so he's kind of going back. He's like retelling. That's what this, this sort of um, device, literary device of recapitulation, sort of telling the same thing over and over again. And there's different applications. And Matthew 24 is incredibly complex to, to think about. And I think that's probably the best way to look at Revelation, too, um, the kind of recapitulation, if that makes any sense. So that's how I would say. I would actually think that what's going on in verses 33 through 34 when he says this generation is actually that generation of the apostles. But and that doesn't mitigate yeah. against other parts of Matthew 24. They're in a different recapitulation circle, if that makes sense. I, no, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. And then um, as far as... Nobody else did, <laughs> but, but I'm glad you did. <laughs> as far as the... Uh, <laughs> The view of the the tribulation in amillennialism is that um, a just a general ongoing tribulation yeah. of the church that's just kind of ebbs and flows. Yeah, I think that um, there's probably a lot of variance in that, but I think that um, most, I would think, uh, the seven or eight that I've read. So of all the millions of officers, most the, the most of the people I've read that would think that tribulation marks the church age. And that um, we could probably expect it. I, I think. I think it's like what's that Dickens, the Tale of Two Cities? You know, these were the best of times; these were the worst of times. I think that amillennialism 
Things are always getting better, and things are always getting worse. And so um, I think that all millennialists would probably be all over the map, but most would see that things, at least in the world, are continuing to decay, but the gospel is still advancing. So it's a, it's not a, I wouldn't hold to a pessimistic view of all millennialism. And I would say that there is probably what you would call a great tribulation, a period of apostasy, like Second Thessalonians 2, the appearing of the man of lawlessness and the great rebellion. I think that's still in the future. But it would, it would differ from post-millennialism in the view of the tribulation as occurring around the time after Christ in the destruction of the temple. A.D. 70, right, yeah. and all that happening before. Yeah, that would be probably a major difference. Yeah. Okay, yeah. thanks. Yeah. yeah, good point, good point. Okay, any other questions? Oh, Dr. Fott. Scrubs and suspenders, man. You, only you can pull that off, John. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so just a couple of things. That Talk into the mic, John, so because we're oh, picking oh, it up on okay. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, just a couple of things. Really the thing that I'm, I don't really have a millennial position that I can honestly say that this is the one I believe is correct. Yeah. A you know. What I'm more concerned about is, one, can we – can we allegor do we allegorically interpret Revelation chapter twenty? And I'll get back to that in a minute. And then yeah. this present age versus the age to come mm -hmm. rules out a millennial reign. And the reason um, I think there's going to be a millennial reign because of Revelation chapter twenty, uh -huh. but also because there are scriptures in the Old Testament that talk about, yep. like in Ezekiel, there's a lot of time mm -hmm. spent building a temple mm -hmm. that where is that gonna be? Yeah. You know, and when is that going to be? Yeah. And to be quite honest, I don't know why a temple would be built. Yeah. You know, but yeah. But yep. there appears that there will be one. And then scriptures like um, talking about Jesus ruling the nations with a rod of iron. Mm -hmm. I mean, what do you yeah. need a rod of iron for if everybody's going to yeah. like it, it's yep. stuff like yep. that? And then yep. the disciples yep. believing that Jesus was going to establish an earthly kingdom. Their, his entire ministry, they believed that, mm -hmm. all the way to the very, until mm -hmm. he ascended into heaven. Mm -hmm. And he didn't ever say, uh, it's not going to be like that, guys. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So that's the other thing. And then yeah. with the amillennial view, uh, the part about Satan being bound, I mean, Peter said Satan walks about, mm -hmm. like you a know, like a roaring lion. lion. <laughs> I mean, is he walking about or is mm -hmm. he bound? I mean, mm -hmm. so yep. that, that mm -hmm. that's where I have a little pause with that. But the biggest yeah. concern I have with that view is that if we kind of allegorically evaluate the first part of Revelation chapter 20, then what do we do about Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 and following? Because that talks about the great white throne judgment. And I don't mm -hmm. think there's anybody that believes that that's not a real event. Yep. And I so. think, uh, yeah, you bring up good points. And I don't think that you can, um, I think, and part of recapitulation which I think is what's going on in Revelation, it's, I think, the best lens to look at it, is that there are times when it is literal and there are times when it is more allegorical or idealistic. And so that's the challenge of looking at these portions of, of Scripture. So, yeah, so every view holds its... Ha, every view has leaks in it. And so that's why I talked about just having a lot of humility... And I would just say that the balance, and this we'll get into this next week, I think just kind of this two-age grid, this age and the age to come, 
just over and over and over again in the New Testament seems to sort of, in a sense, kind of simplify this age that we're in and the age to come, and even Jesus speaking along those lines. But you bring up good points, John. All right, any, 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 question, any questions, comments, thoughts? Colby. I'm just still curious on that because the Satan being bound thing, that's yeah. just something I've never understood about the view. Yeah, well, yeah, I don't really understand it that much either. <laughs> um, you know, Jesus speaks about it in his ministry, about the strong man. Where is that? Um, somebody maybe find that for me. I think I might have had it in my notes um, under amillennialism. Uh, uh Okay, Matthew chapter 12, verse 29. Um, uh, let me re- read verse 28. But if it, it, This is Jesus speaking. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then, so Amillennius would sort of see that as pointing to Jesus' binding of Satan. Again, you know, it could be future, uh, but I think there's the sense that it's at the cross because then you look at uh, that where all, that's where amillennialism would kind of lean more into the postmillennial optimistic view of looking at how the success of Jesus. And yeah, I mean, John brings up a good point about First Peter chapter 5. You know, the enemy prowls about like a lion. You know, Luke chapter 10, um, this binding of Satan. What's Luke chapter 10 say? Let me just read that. Um, verse 18, uh, this binding of Satan. And it says, I saw Satan fall, and he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Again, uh, the amillennialist interpretation would be, this is after the 72 returned with joy, speaking of this age of the gospel advance. So I think what I want to say with your question and put it with John's is, there's no millennial view that we can just sort of say, ah, well, there it is. Let's put it in a box. There's tensions and there's ambiguity and not not that God is ambiguous, but but there's there's lack of there's there's mystery on this. So we can't just take these things and put them into a box and say that's the way it's going to be, and that's intended by the Lord. And we'll talk about that in the coming weeks. I think to keep His people expectant. So you guys are asking some great questions. Yeah, Taylor. Oh no, the seminary trained guy's coming. Uh oh. Uh, yeah, I, I was just going to me- mention, piggyback off, off yeah. of that, the, at least the way I've heard it explained on Revelation 20, verse 3, mm-hmm. if we're talking about the yeah. binding of Satan, it specifically ties it that he's sealed so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Mm-hmm. So there's this connection about the binding of Satan and the deception of the nations, not the activity of Satan per se but just that ability to de- deceive, which I think clearly from church history, yeah. he does not have anymore right? because it's on every continent. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, yeah. but, we, but what you just said, I would sort of appropriate as being part of the amillennial view. Yeah, sure. Okay, yeah. I, I, yeah. So then, yes, I would agree with that. No, I, but, I, no, but <laughs> yeah, way to go. No, 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 I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm just, I was going for a cheap laugh. I was going for a cheap laugh. I, I really want to make this point. You guys know I'm not above that. I really want to make this point that I'm not just trying to argue for one particular position because there's points of historic premillennialism that I that I'm really find, um, like John pointed out, it's very valid. There's points about postmillennialism. I think, I think, I think if you know if you had to say hey, choose one, I would say amillennialism broadly, 
makes the most sense to me and has the least leaks in its boat, but it still has got lots of leaks. So, so I was just being silly, but thank you. That was a good point. Yeah, yeah Dr. Derringer. So mine is more of a question for you to answer if you're going to address some specific things in the future. So I come from, historically was, you know, grew up in a, a dispensational yeah. free mill, yeah. have shifted towards, um, you know, the, the classical pre-mill. Mm -hmm. And one of the, the things that I've heard, particularly in those worlds, as criticisms of post and more so even of amillennial, is once you get past in Revelations talking about the seven churches in uh -huh. Asia Minor uh -huh. until about Revelation 20, yeah. there's a whole lot of content in Revelation. You know, there's the seals, the bowls, yep. the tribulation, yep. there's, yep. you know, the beast, the antichrist, and so much of that that, and granted, I haven't been in a context where this was taught heavily, but all of that stuff just seems to evaporate to allegory, but no intent to interpret. Yes. And that might just be a lack of context and me having that, that experience. Are those things that you're going to cover in the subsequent weeks, or would you just no, say that that's just I, one of the, the... I would think, areas? that's a great question, Danny, uh, I, I would think that that would be um, probably, because that would take a lot, and that's going to be when Mark McGraw finally gets his wish and we work through Revelation mm -hmm. in 2047, but um, I would think that amillennialism and postmillennialism, I would say, would say that all of those things have an expression, an application that we've seen them through the history of the church. We would see them like in the, in the patristic area, era and the medieval era and the, the, the Reformation. I think amillennial, a lot of these judgments being poured out kind of upon the Catholic church. And so um, I don't think we're going to get deep into that because that's just, I think, better suited for an exposition of revelation. Mm -hmm. But I understand what you're saying. That's a valid critique. It's a wrong way to read Revelation to just say, oh, well, this is really ambiguous. Ah, just, man, this is all symbolic. Jeez, this is just all falls into the basket of Jesus wins. I think that's too simplistic, if that's what you're saying. And I think that's a valid critique. Okay. Yeah, which is why Mark has been harping about going through Revelation. <laughs> Any other questions before? One or two more. Taylor. Could you just clarify how... 70 AD and the destruction of the temple. So I, I've heard that explained that some people believe that that's part of Christ's return or that that was the return. And then mm. how that plays okay. into, does that like sink it, sit into one of the groups yeah. or is that? Yeah. Well, um, no, I think, I think that um, pretty much, I, I may be wrong on this tale. That's a really good question. Pretty much every view, and I won't get too deep into Matthew 24, but go home this week and read Matthew 24. It's called the Olivet Discourse, and it's Jesus' most extensive teaching on, I think, the end, or whether that was a close end or a faraway end in all the Bible. I think all of the views, at least to some degree, would view that what's going on in Matthew 24, the events that Jesus speaks of, some of which clearly seem to be fulfilled in the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and others seem to be pointing more towards the future. 
Some would say that it speaks about the return of Christ, and that's clearly what's going on in verses 29 through 31, I think, although some would disagree with that. But this view, it's called preterism. It's the view that everything that has happened in, that Jesus speaks about in, verse, in chapter 24, and he does speak about his return. He speaks about, then the end will come, and he will come. Even your most conservative, ardent post-millennialists would view that, would hold that still Christ's return is in the future, clearly, because they're orthodox Christianity. But there is an interpretation of Matthew 24 that all of what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24, even his return, has happened. And so that's called preterism, and that has been, I think, branded rightly as a heresy by the, by the uh, you know, believing church through the centuries because it's viewing that Jesus has already come back, and I don't think there's any biblical basis for that. So to one degree or another, whether you're pre-mill, pre-mill post-mill, or all-mill, you believe in some variation of, of um, combination of Matthew 24, either being half and half or mostly already fulfilled or not a lot. Some, a lot of, I say the pre-mill, think about a lot of it being in the future, all-mill, sort of in the middle, post-mill, think a lot, most of it has been already fulfilled, of course, with the return of Christ in the future. I hope I didn't confuse everybody, but Matthew 24 is notoriously challenging to interpret, notoriously challenging. Um, so did that help at all? You're not going to say no, so you're just going to give me a compliment or yes. Okay, thank you. Just make me feel better in this moment. Okay, any other questions? One more, if we have any time. Okay, I know it's a school night. All right, let me pray, and I'll stick around for questions. Um, come back next week, guys. Um, please come back. Uh, I'm begging you pastorally. Uh, I know sometimes we do these. We'll start off strong, and then by the end we'll have 10 people. Um, l- let's dig into this. I, not because I want to argue for this or that or the other, but because, like, even if you don't agree with me, and that's fine, like, that we think more deeply about this glorious reality that Jesus is coming back, and w- in light of that, let's be people that love his appearing. I want, I want this to help our sanctification, regardless of where, even if we disagree with, with each other on these things, it will help us as a church. So, Lord, to that end, I pray that you would go with us, that we would be people that are sober-minded, that have our feet on the ground. If I've said anything that's wrong tonight, let those words fall to the ground. If I've said anything that's helpful or encouraging, help it stimulate thought and uh, deep thinking about the beautiful things of God. And I pray tonight and the next few weeks would help us be people that fit the description of Paul in 2 Timothy, people that love your appearing. All for your glory and our good, we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thanks, guys.